Hi, my name is Reggie Williams, and I'm one of the executive directors of Black Film Space. Black Film Space is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the careers of black filmmakers. We host workshops, panels, and other community building events that are designed to support black content creators. We also have a membership program that offers discounts to filmmaking resources, free events, a filmmaking database, grants, a mentorship program, and much more. Welcome to the Black Film Space Podcast. How are you today? I am well. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Thank you uh, so much for being here. Uh, I'm really excited to, to dive into this interview and just learn more about um, what you're doing as a filmmaker. So, um, uh, really interested to know, you know, how you got your start um, in filmmaking and particularly around Um, yes, sure. So thanks for listening to the black film space. How did I start? I mean, if you're interested in attending our events. I started, I think, as a child listening to stories, you know, and liking to facilitate storytelling and being a part of storytelling. I think, you know, I learned about producing in college when I had an opportunity to produce a film for a friend who didn't have anyone else to do it and really liked being able to. Hi, my name is Reggie Williams. Go from every stage of, of the storytelling from concept to completion in a way that no one else who touched the project ever would. And that really enticed me. I had no idea, though, how challenging the actual profession was or even, you know, really how the money would break down. I just really liked being a creator, like being able to come up with an idea with someone and help them write it, develop it with them as they wrote it. And then, you know, take it all the way to the end. So I ended up, once I re realized that's what I wanted to do, because there were a few things I thought I wanted to do. I mean, I wanted to, to, to direct in college. I wanted to be a DP. But after producing, I just thought, whoa, like your hands get to be on everything. And I like the idea of being everybody's boss. <laughs> so that's how it kind of started. Like, and then, and then I went to AFI. Uh, out in Los Angeles and that was a good experience just learning I think all of the different universities and graduate film programs teach a different part of filmmaking or have a strength in different areas and I know like with USC it's, it's very focused on networking in the studio system and I think AFI is really about getting your hands dirty and figuring out how to do it they really train you um, and you come out with the actual skills to produce, you know how to build a, a budget, you know how to build a schedule, you know how to negotiate location contracts, um, and you know how to follow SAG rules and things like that. 
So I think that was really helpful because I knew how to do it. And I think there are a lot of producers who have specific skills and they bring tremendous values to the projects that they work on, but they don't necessarily know how to do it all, even in the realm of producing. And I got a good an opportunity at AFI to learn, you know, really 360 how to produce. So, um, you know, I came out of school in a very tenuous time. It was during the writer's strike and the recession all folded into one. And I was fortunate enough to be a part of a program at the time called, and it still exists, this program, it's a film independent program called Project Involved. And there's tons of amazing filmmakers who've come out of that program. It, it was, it's a program that allowed um, filmmakers who were underrepresented, whether you be black or a woman or LGBTQ plus or, anything, any other underrepresented group, um, physically disabled, it, they gave you an opportunity to make a short that would screen at the LA Film Festival and they pay for it, um, along with mentorship and uh, professional development. With the mentorship piece, you got a mentor. So my mentor was Stephanie Elaine and everybody knows Stephanie Elaine as you know the powerhouse producer who's made movies like Hustle and Flow and Boys in the Hood and, you know, together we made Dear White People. And, you know, I was very fortunate for her to take me under her wing. And because of that, I think people trusted that I had the skills that I already had. So mm. I got on the AFI, I already knew how to make a film. She could see that. Um, and because she was standing next to me saying, yeah, we're gonna give, Mel's gonna do X, Y, and Z, no one questioned it. I don't even know if my AF, my AFI degree would have allowed me that much access. Um, I guess we'll never find out, but I just know that like, you know, having her there definitely made people more comfortable with with trusting me with their work, with their projects, when giving notes or when having to build a schedule or budget or, um, you know, call an agent or whatever I needed to do in those beginning stages. So that's how, kind of how I started. And what I learned, I mean, I made, I've made mostly independent films and there isn't a lot of money in it. You know, I think I've been very fortunate to have made a film a year for a number of years, right? So it was deceptively lucrative. And then um, I think I just started to feel, I think around the time that I decided that I wanted to pursue directing more um, is when things slowed down. And then obviously the pandemic happened. And, you know, it, if you're not making studio movies, it, it, you know, I think it is a very difficult profession to have and sustain yourself. So I think as a producer, there's, there are a number of ways in which you would need to look at your income streams and figure out, you know, how to, how to make, if, especially if you want to make indie films, how to make that happen and, to, and have the life that you want to live. I'd love to hear more about the details of producing, particularly around um, feature films. Mm -hmm. um, I've, you know, I've produced content. Um, I've produced short content, independent content, just like my own stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm wondering like, what are the differences between producing kind of like run and gun, low budget, independent projects and like the bigger features like, um, it, it feels, you know, on my end, I'm, it feels like I'm essentially a pr project manager. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm just wondering what the difference is between doing the short, low budget stuff and the, the features that eventually end up on uh, Netflix. So essentially, it's the same thing. It's project management. It's the same thing. I think uh, they're just different tiers. So when you're making a running gun short film, um, you're doing a lot of the job. So you're the location manager, you can be catering, you are, you know, obviously the line producer, you're figuring out the money most of the time. You're also uh, dealing with talent and talent agreements and things like that and the schedule. You're working with almost every single person, but you're also carrying some of the load for almost every department. I think as the films 
get bigger and there are more resources, then there are more people for that work to spread across. And obviously there's more work to do. So there are more locations, there are more actors, there are, um, you know, like more intricate scheduling needs, things like that. So in terms of what the job is, the job is always the same. And also the job is defined in a million different ways. Unfortunately, with, um, the title of being a lot of people can get the title of being a producer without actually having produced anything mm -hmm. and also people um contribute to the film without having been on the set or contribute to the film without um having you know um you know looked at the budget or worked with the line producer or something like that it's just like so many ways in which you can be a producer on a film but if you're nuts and bolts day to day the same thing you're going to do on a short film is what you're gonna be doing on a huge film, like a $20 million film, and it's managing people and personalities. I think that's the biggest thing is every trying to get everyone, hurting all the cats to um, the common goal of making an outstanding film. You know, like getting that person who, you know, doesn't wanna talk to the other person to play nice for like three more days until you know, you rap or negotiating ridiculous rates on a on a camera camera's lens package because your DP really wants it and it's gonna make the difference between the film being okay and magnificent, you know? So I think it's just, it's really about managing people, figuring out ways to get the things you need with the budget because there's always limitations no matter how big the budget is, you know? So like trying to figure out the best way to make the story happen, make the film happen and tell the story in the in the best way and figuring out what those things are that are non-negotiable that you must have. And then those things that you can, that can fall away. I think every producer has to help guide the production in that direction um, and the director in that direction and the writer in that direction, depending on what stage you're in. And it's really our job to really keep and protect the vision and the original intent of the story um, at all costs and, and to make sure you can do it within a budget and schedule. Mm. What, what do you think you, you learned from AFI that you already didn't know going in? That I already didn't know? Um, I think I learned about politics, um, really. I think, you know, uh, AFI works like a microcosmic model of Hollywood and so you got those big personalities, you got the kind of factions and groups and cliques, you have all the types of things that you don't get to learn in a textbook. You know, what you have to work with people with different uh, socioeconomic backgrounds and belief systems and ideals and prejudices and figuring out how to navigate all of that was something that I didn't really know how to do. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, you know, coming, I'm from Virginia, so a lot of our, my experience have been with, you know, other people who were black or like, you know, it wasn't like, it. and I went to Howard, so it was all, everybody was black. Mm -hmm. So it was like a different experience to have to deal with, you know, uh, I think too, telling stories is such a powerful tool. And I don't think that I understood how powerful it was until all of those dynamics were at play. Because there's certain ways in which people believe you should be as a woman or should be as a person of color or what makes sense to them because of their ideas about a certain group versus your personal experience and how to take criticism when that's at play like all of that were things that I I didn't know how to do that I, I was just like what <laughs> you know and then and then I learned you know I learned the language to address those things so that we could have dialogue or the ways in which to kind of get around, you know, being an angry black woman because somebody said something offensive or, you know, like just how to do that type of stuff because I hadn't really had uh, the opportunity to to practice those skills until AFI. Okay. And honestly, I'm still not that great at it. I mean, I think I'm pretty good, like I'm decent at it, but it's, it is just a really tenuous process too, especially when most of the money is coming from white people. So, um, and for you to be trusted as a person of color, um, it, you got to go through a lot of hoops to get it. Um, and so it's just a really, really, really 
delicate process in general that you have to navigate when making a film and um, kind of being under that type of scrutiny and having people's money on the line. You know, it's, it's a risk in general. And so people usually trust people who look like them, who have similar backgrounds to them. And when it comes to something as important as money, you know, that's a big deal. And so it's just a lot of hoops and a lot of things you have to deal with. Yeah. You know, I can imagine. I yeah. Mm -hmm. It's not for the faint hearted, but you know, it's really rewarding. So it, you know, and I think if you do have that skill, whether you like it or not, if you can kind of make the choices, the word choices and write the emails the right way and all that stuff, then it's like, I know nobody, not everybody believes this, but I feel like you owe it to everyone else who can't, you know, to help get these stories told because it is just so delicate, you know, and, and our stories are so important and it's so powerful to see ourselves represented in all types of ways. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's not, you know, this, it's not everybody's bag. So I think even though I am transitioning out of producing as much as I had before, I don't know that I ever stopped because I do know how hard it is, but I know that a lot of the movies that I made wouldn't have been made, you know, yeah. um, they wouldn't have been made the way that they were made at least. And so, and there's just a constant battle between, you know, commerce and art, but then also between uh, what we believe about a group of people and what is and, you know, authenticity and all that stuff. It, it all gets wrapped into conversations uh, when people with the money get to decide, you know, what you should do here, what you shouldn't do there. How did producing um, make directing Lamert Park smoother for you as a first time director? Um, I think, it, I mean, I think, oh, that's such a good question. And I feel like I've answered answered it before, but every time I answer it, just more things come to me about how privileged I was to have gone through the process with other and to be trusted by other first time directors to go through the process with them and seeing them maneuver and make choices and make mistakes and fix those mistakes and make really brilliant choices and succeed allowed me to you know see the process like under the hood because I think a lot of people don't have that opportunity to just sit next to someone who's doing that for the first time and I had the opportunity to do that over and over again to the point where I knew it was possible for me to do it mm -hmm. and so I think that that was a, the greatest gift of producing of course I knew like all the technical things and when it came to Lamert, there were certain things um in Lamert that I really wanted and that as a producer, I could say, well, no, we can't afford it. Let's just get rid of this, that, or the third, because I just had the know-how and the knowledge to, to be able to make those decisions and bargain in, in those ways. But I think the most valuable part was just bearing witness to other people in their artistic processes. And that those kind of experiences influenced my own artistic process and like who I wanted to be and how I wanted to to move uh, as a director. So I think that was like the biggest, the, the biggest thing that I took from it. That's what's up. Um, I'm, I'm really curious because, uh, you know, to have your, the first, this is the first project you've ever directed. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So like, that's amazing. You know, you know, a typical path is like, you know, people direct um, a few shorts Mm -hmm. uh, before they go on to direct a feature or a series, you know, for, for like a mm -hmm. platform or a TV, you know, TV network. So I, and I, and I, I always look at people's resumes and I'm like, wow, like this is the first thing that they directed. And I'm curious to know, like, I know you learned a lot from producing, but like mm -hmm. what other sort of preparation did you take? Like, were you watching a lot of, um, you know tv shows and movies from a director's point of view did you shadow any directors like what did you mm -hmm. do to go in to, to prepare yourself for this i talked to a lot of my director friends a lot of people who i respected and would have even maybe called to direct the digital series who were starting to pop and the digital series was like too small for them for advice i also i watched a lot of digital series 
So I had a spreadsheet of like, I don't know, 200 series. And I would just watch them all and write down what I liked about each one of them. Um, I also spent a lot of, I knew the DP because I produced a movie who I, and I brought him on, I brought him on to his first film. Now he's, you know, skyrocketing and doing amazing things. And so I had a relationship with him. So being able to talk through things ad nauseum was really helpful. My process is a lot of talking. Like I just can't show up on the set and it's like, I need to talk it through and then talk it through some more. And then at some point it becomes clear, you know? So I think a lot of just talking through what I wanna do and how could I achieve that? And what does that visual language mean? And if I did this, how what would it communicate? And what colors don't I wanna use? Or what colors do I wanna use? And you know, how do I want the light to be? It's just really getting very specific about things. And I read a lot of books um, too. And I think it, it, before I direct anything, I always look up a director who whose style is similar to maybe what I'm doing or who there's just like a certain element that I'm trying to perfect. Um, and I, you know, will watch all the videos about how they deconstructed a scene or different things like that. So I like like pulling things apart, looking at different things and then seeing how to put them back together and then trying them in my own work. And then sometimes it does not work out, <laughs> but I do like trying it and then just seeing like, because it never comes out exactly like theirs does. And then I go, whoa, like that's my thing. You know, like I was trying to do that, but it came out like this and I know how to recreate the thing I created. You know what I mean? And I like it. So I think it's, you know, a lot of looking at what other people are doing watching, you know, seeing what I like about that, reading a lot of things and um, talking it through. I think that's that's kind of what I learned um, in making Lemur. And just, I think more, the most important thing is having, having a supportive producer. Like the, the editing of it lagged and, you know, the first cut was awful. I think I sent it to Rada, Rada Blake, and I was like, Yo, can you look at this? Because I don't know. And she gave me some feedback, and I was like, "She's kind. This is crap, right?" <laughs> and then, and then eventually, it made sense. It just started to click, you know. And I think it was just that very supportive, solid base of producers that allowed me to not freak out and think that I'd done a bad job before I got to where it needed to go. You know, and it gave me the space also to do that. That that's it's really amazing to hear you um, say that the first cut, you know, it wasn't very good. I think um, Francis Ford Coppola. I think he directed Apocalypse Now, uh, which is you know a critically acclaimed film. <laughs> but when it first came out, like when he the first cut, like. I don't know. He might have been on like Suicide Watch or something. Don't don't quote me on that. But like he wasn't yeah. like he was like, oh shit, this is terrible. Um, I I'd love to hear more about like the steps that it took to get to a place where you're like, okay, this is it's working now. This is good. Man, I mean, it was rough because. It's one thing to support somebody like a doula, like a producer is kind of like a doula, you know? So you're supporting somebody through the birth of this vision, you know? It's one thing to be there because to a certain degree, the stakes for you personally are not that high. They're not as high as the person who's creating the thing, the baby or the film, right? And to be in that seat, to know that every decision um, that was made was mine, you know, and, and to not like any of it. Um, it'd be times where I just didn't even want to look at it, you know, because I didn't know what to do. Um, but I think it really, it's a, it's really a test of your vision to be able to, to know that you set out to do something and that it's all there. You just haven't put together correctly, you know, um, and to keep pushing. If I had given up too soon, um, we'd be in a different spot right now. Like Stephanie Elaine has this really good quote that I love and I use it almost every day with my daughter and with myself. And it's, um, it all works out in the end. And if it hasn't worked out, it's not the end. Mm. I actually disagree with the notion of like, of failing. 
<laughs> in regards to, as long as you complete the project you know like in my opinion that's that's i mean i feel that way too i agree with you like in my life but you know the the way that our industry works that's not the case you know directors go to director get jail you know um <laughs> it is a, it's a business that, that's a, a real business. thing i mean yeah it's a business. I mean, I'm very process oriented as a human being. So, you know, as long as I enjoyed the experience of making it and did my very best, I'm pretty happy, you know, at the, at the end of the day with whatever. And I mean, cause you can't really control outcomes. Exactly. It's too many other factors that are beyond your control, but you know, if your film doesn't make any money, it's, it's considered that, you know, whether you want to consider it yourself, that your stuff is up to you. Cause I mean, I always tell myself like nobody knew who Picasso was when he was alive. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, what you, I think there's value in everything that anybody puts out into the world, but you know, there is a system that if you decide to play in it, like the Hollywood system, there, there just are metrics for success. Um, so you have to just decide if you, like you said, like you can agree to disagree and still make the work and still be successful in the eyes of Hollywood or be unsuccessful in the eyes of Hollywood and be, personally fine which I think is the, at least my goal is to be okay with uh, whatever happens um, no matter how it's kind of criticized or what others have to say about it yeah I mean, I mean that's, that's the goal now yeah that makes that makes sense um, but I'm just thinking about when you said directors jail or directing jail um, I think about M. Night Shyamalan who I mean, at this point, yeah. I mean, he, he solidified. Yeah. I guess he solidified himself with the sixth sense because there was a point where I remember being in the movie theaters to watch a different movie, mm -hmm. not an M. Light Shyamalan movie, a different movie, and the trailer mm -hmm. for one of his films comes on, and people are groaning. As it, 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 <laughs> no, it was like a trailer, and then it was like it was like either produced or directed by M. Night Shyamalan, and once they saw that, people were like, "Oh." Oh, here we go. Like that's that's yeah, where his I career mean, was at, but he's still putting out films. He still makes movies. And you know what? I think that that speaks to the faith he has in himself. I mean, it's really about how you feel about yourself. When you go in a room, if you can convince people to invest in you, it doesn't matter what you did before, but because we have these kind of in, invisible and, and really like not real metric system that we have to you know, you know, what did, what does it say on Rotten Tomatoes? What did Hollywood reporters say? Whatever it was, if we buy into that, then it affects our self-esteem, our confidence, how we move through the world, how we assert ourselves, how we present ourselves, how we present our projects. And it, it becomes, you know, self-fulfilling kind of trickle down effect. I don't think he has that problem. I don't think, I think he's like, I came here to tell stories. You don't get it. You don't get it. The people gave me the money, get it. Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to keep doing it. And I just, I don't know, maybe at nighttime he feels bad because people talk about him a lot. I mean, I mean, I watched recently one of his movies because I'd never seen it. It was The um, the Last Airbender. Mm -hmm. And I went after it. I was like, whoa. And then I went after it and looked on, you know, on Rotten Tomatoes. It was, I was awful, you know, the ratings. And I was like, mm. you know, and then obviously there wasn't another one that came out and it was clearly supposed to be a sequel. Yeah. Um, and but he just keeps going. But, pe but you know, and, but and that way he's a hero. Though. Yeah, people are giving giving him opportunities, but I really think it's because he completely and utterly believes in himself. There are a lot of people like that in our industry where, you know, talent is, I would say, in the eye of the beholder. You know what I mean? Like, where you're like, what? But they're like they're constantly working because they believe in what they have to say enough that others will too, mm. you know? And I think that that's really what it comes down to. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in regards to like, you mentioned your, your preparation, you know, talking to your colleagues, mm. um, watching a bunch of digital series. What about when it comes to working with actors? Do you have experience? Did you have experience prior to that? No, I mean, the most experience that I had prior to directing Lamert Park was directing plays in undergrad, you know? So, and I guess that definitely counts as experience, but it had been a very long time, you know, between 
undergrad and when I directed Lemert. Like I got married and had a kid, you know? Mm-hmm. So it wasn't, it wasn't like it was the day, the day before the last or whatever that I had directed actors. Um, but I did get a really good foundation there in the fine arts department. And I think it, you know, the preparation for that was, um, I looked, I watched what all the other directors did and I took notes every time, you know, like mental notes. I didn't know I was going to direct at the time, but I would be like, I like how they did this or that. And I started, I tried a bunch of stuff to, to something worked for me, you know? Um, but it was, it's definitely a process. It's not necessary. It's not easy. I don't think, um, to, to pull the performance that you want out of the actors, um, unless you cast it correctly. So I think it's all about casting really. And did, so, you, did you have a, a hand in the casting part? Of course. Yeah. Like I would never, <laughs> I mean, that's the only part. I'm like, look, you know, nah, like I'm picking them. Like, yes, I had a real hand and uh, I had a really amazing casting director, Kim Coleman, who's done all types of stuff, you know, um, what has she done recently? Why am I blanking on what Kim has done? She does a lot of Spike Lee stuff. Mm-hmm. She does, you know, she did Dear White People, the series and the movie um, and a lot of other movies that I've worked on. And so, you know, she's a good friend and an amazing collaborator. And, you know, I would bounce ideas off of her. She knew what I was looking for. And we really went to town auditioning women to to see who would work nice and then making sure that they work together so we did chemistry reads and all that stuff mm-hmm. awesome awesome um mm-hmm. in regards to like observing directors i remember i was uh a pa on this reality show thing i don't even know if it was a react i don't know what it was but i was a pa on this thing <laughs> and i just remember the direct like essentially shit was hitting the fan like on on set on production mm-hmm. and the directors and producers are so calm yeah like, they were super calm and i was like that's how i need to be and and i'm not saying i'm there but that's like how i need to be like if if shit is hitting the fan i'm calm and cool and I, i'm curious to know like what maybe like if you can give us like an example of something you observe that maybe you um, implemented in your own production? Um, well, I would say too, to that calmness and that coolness that those directors and producers exhibited, that a lot of that comes with experience because you make one film and this shit hits the fan and then you make another film and this shit still hits the fan and then you make another one and it still hits the fan till you know that it's gonna be okay. You know, like I think that's really why maybe they were so calm because they knew they'd figure it out. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just like having the experience to have, you know, kind of persevered through a few problems and come out on the other end. Um, in terms of like something that may have happened, like, I mean, oh man, I mean, as a producer of other people's films, I mean, there are so many things that happened <laughs> in every single one. There was, oh, there was one on Burning Sands where a member of the extremist white right, oh, I said white, um, decided to ride around our set in a pickup truck with the Confederate flag on it. Oh wow! And he happened, and that was just what he did. So that's fine. Like you can't stop anybody from driving on public road, whatever. Um, we continue to work, but then he decided to ratchet it up a bit and use uh sexual slurs uh toward women who are walking toward the set and he happened to do that to the owner of the building's wife or girlfriend Mm. and she didn't know who he was and assumed he was a part of our crew i don't know why because we were mostly black people um but she was upset and told him about it and so he decided that we needed to get off of this property while we were shooting Mm. And we didn't have like another, you know, it was an sh- uh, indie film. Like there wasn't any, any cover set or other place to go. And so I remember having to basically talk to him for three to four hours um, until we gotten what we needed to get, you know? And like, I mean, it was just, I'd have to, you know, he'd be like, 
you got to leave now. I'm like, all right, let me just, let me just try to figure out who, you know, I just made up stuff <laughs> until he, and I think he, at some point he knew and was just completely impressed by my diligence, mm -hmm. you know, it just like, this girl's crazy. And also maybe had talked to his girlfriend or wife and realized that it was, you know, some kind of KKK, you know, you know, right wing person. And that just wouldn't even have been any of the people who are on our set. But he eventually just, you know, you know, he made us get out and everything, but we were done. You know, he still had to do the thing with his male ego and kick us out, but we, we were done. You know what I mean? So it was fine. Like I was like, oh, I, you know, I did the whole thing. I was so upset by the fact he was kicking us out while we were already going to pack up, but it, it worked out. So, you know, that was a really stressful situation but at the end of the day I know even if we had gotten kicked out we would have figured something out um and you know the director didn't ever know you know that that was even on the table the entire time he was working you know so Damn. um That's so like high level producing <laughs> Had no idea. And so, and so, and that's always kind of the case. Like, I'll, it'll always, I'll be talking about something that happened. So, the director's like, Remember when that happened? They're like, That happened? I'm like, Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it did. Like, you know, almost went to hell. <laughs> yeah, like, remember when, you know, so I think it's, um, I think I learned to be kind of patient and just kind of see it through and do my best and know that I'm going to figure out the answer. And when it came to Lamert, we had a similar, not a similar, it wasn't as bad as this, but our, we had two cameras, both of them broke down on the last day of shooting. And we had a club scene where we had this um, intricate, like Steadicam shot planned and um, Steadicam rig also was went under, I mean, like and everything broke down. So then I had like a fraction of the time, by the time we got a new camera to make uh, the film and everything had to be shot on sticks. And I really did not want that. like. You know, I like I had this whole thing that I was supposed to do and supposed to be and it couldn't be. And we just had to kind of shoot it on the fly. And it's like one of my most favorite one of my most favorite scenes are in that set, you know, or on that set. And, you know, I wouldn't have, it probably would have been shot that way had we had all the equipment. So it just works out. But I mean, it was like I had like three hours to do something that, you know, originally had like 10 hours to do um, because of just all the issues. So, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Sounds uh sounds intense. Um Yeah. It can be, but it was fun. Like everybody just was like, all right, so this is what we're gonna do. You know, it's just like let's figure it out. It just it builds yeah. your confidence, if anything. You know, like you said, like now you know you can handle any sort of situation. Um, yeah. 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 Or at least you're gonna you're gonna die trying. You know what I mean? Like it's not like you go in the corner and cry about it and not even try, you know, mm -hmm. like you give it everything and then know that like when you do a lot of the times it works out yeah yeah um which scene was the most exciting to direct in the Mert park um the most exciting scene was the have you watched it i, I haven't okay i don't want to ruin it for you maybe you, sh you should watch it one day if you ever get a chance i know you probably watch a lot of things but my most favorite scene in Lamert is the scene where Kendra is with her boo and she's depressed because she hasn't um, been able to get an art show up. And he tells her to use the dildo that he has and perform anal sex on him. And the way in which I was able to shoot it because it's such a, you know, like, I didn't want it to feel graphic and um, like it hurt because, you know, his character was asking for it like he liked it, you know, it's just mm -hmm. some kinky stuff that he liked. Um, and so the way that I chose to shoot it was to have them, he says a line where he says, no, try it. It'll give you wings. And um, so they float. It's like, she's just kind of behind him and they're like floating up in the air and he looks excited and happy. And she looks like she's flying as he, said she would and i think it was just really interesting to on a lot of levels because it was an expensive shot you know like we had to have uh stunt people rig them up and have them float and get to at the right angle and 
we needed the effects to get those, you know, mix out of the shot. And we also needed to find a man who was comfortable uh, playing that role. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's just a lot of things that came together to make that. And, you know, I just also think that it's really important as uh, Black people to really open our minds to what pleasure is for us. Like, I mean, I've never actually, you know, done that, but I know people who have and who like it. So I think it's just, but we're so judgmental about like how people decide to express their sexuality and find pleasure. And I thought it'd be really interesting to create um, a scene where that wasn't the case and where people be, who could just laugh and be like, yo, like they wild, you know? And so I feel like I was able to achieve that. So it was my, my one of my favorite scenes. Dope, dope. That, that also sounds like it could have been one of the more challenging scenes to direct, not just because of the, the, the subject matter, but also because they, they were like floating, right? So. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they were hooked up and the and the rigs were tight, like to secure them, but they were also uncomfortable and they couldn't look uncomfortable. Like that was the antithesis of what the scene was about. So yeah, it was a lot of trying to work it out, get it how it needed to be in the time frame that it needed to be done, you know. Um, so yeah, it was definitely difficult, uh, but it was rewarding. And I think I remember. So the first time I watched it was at UTA. And I remember when that scene happened, like like a couple people got up and left. And I was like, yes, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. It, just, <laughs> it made me excited to see that it evoked an emotion, even if it were one of like disgust and disdain, because it really probably challenged people's belief systems, especially in the way that it was presented. So I counted that as one. And there were other people who were, you know, laughing and, whatever else, but I think those people who left made me feel like, oh, I've made a statement. I've said something that I wanted to say and it was received. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think, I think, I don't think all art has to push boundaries and make people uncomfortable, but I think some of the best art um, does, you know, like if we're not yeah. pushing boundaries, uh, maybe not pushing boundaries, but if we're not, if, if, if we're not, um, if we're just kind of staying in a, in a completely like safe space, like what are we really doing? You know? Yeah. Like I think it should be challenging, you know? So I think it just challenged people's ideals. I don't know that there's another scene on the planet with a black woman, you know, doing that. So. <laughs> you're, you're a pioneer. Yeah. Yo, um, you know? What can I say? Uh, what, what was like, some of the most important things when you were creating the characters for Lemert? Um, so I really, li- having lived in Lemert for many years and having had almost 12 roommates, I think, I've lost count at this point, but I like somewhere around 12 room- roommates over the course of the time that I lived in this one house. And I was the one person who stayed. I was always like, the, the one person who was there. Mm-hmm. And I just met so many different people and we were all in so many crazy situations. And you know, we were in our, you know, I went from my twenties and my thirties in that, you know, house. So there are like many, many years in there. And I wanted to make sure that the characters felt like my friends and the people who had lived in the house and the people that I met in Lamert, And that it was really representative of an experience that was real um, and that was lived. And so that was like the most important thing in crafting the characters is that they were real to me mm-hmm. and that they weren't serving a purpose. Like this friend is going to be this and this friend is going to be that, but that characters were built from true and real life that I really wanted that because I, I felt like, you know, I hadn't seen anything quite like that. And it was when I started thinking of the show and ideating around the show, um, Easter Ray show wasn't even out, you know? So mm-hmm. like, it wasn't anything really out like that. And I, w- I was thinking about shows like Living Single, you know what I mean? And 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 thinking where, where, where where's our version of that and Girlfriends. So I wanted to do something like that, that was set in LA and, and in, a, in a neighborhood and also to like, show love to a neighborhood that I really loved. You know, I wanted to encapsulate Lamar Park 
and um, just what it was at the time, knowing that gentrification and change in general was going to make it so that this was a moment in time that would never exist again. And the experience of Vermont would never really be the same as it was when we filmed. Mm -hmm. And I was really proud and happy to to be able to contribute to documenting a space that brought so much love and light and energy and creativity to, to my life. Have you screened it there? Yeah, I mean, well, no, we never screened it in. We never screened it in Lemur. We just brought everybody from Lemur to UTA. Okay. So everybody, it was so crazy. Everybody was there. Yeah. <laughs> everybody, not everybody from Lemur, but you know, everybody yeah, yeah, kind I know, of involved and all my friends and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. They, they got a chance. I wanted to be able to uh, screen it at some point. I think the hard part is that I don't know that we could ever screen it outdoors because of some of the content. So most of the areas where you can screen it in Lemur are outdoor screens and just kind of against backdrops on wall you know big building walls and stuff so i don't know um if we'll ever have a chance and now that it's on bt plus like it's not really mine to do that with you know i'd have to wait till a little bit later but yeah lots of folks there have seen it and they know about it and you know being the newspaper for the neighborhood and stuff like that mm -hmm. so that's what's up know. yeah what uh what influenced your decision to have lamert park be on bet I think, you know, that was more of a, honestly, more it, when you're not the producer, you're not the producer, you know, like I may have a producing credit, but in terms of like all the business decisions, um, that was a macro call. I think they had a really good relationship with macro because we had made the, we, it just got on uh, BBT plus this year. And so we made the digital series and then the digital series market tanked, you know, like Vimeo stopped making digital series like everyone started realizing that there wasn't as much money as they thought there would be in digital content so you know and everyone started all those digital filmmakers started making tv you know so um nobody was like trying to buy it and the one thing that we could have done you know in retrospect that we just didn't do is we could have pitched it as a show but because there was a digital department at macro they wanted to sell it first as a digital show to you know kind of cement why that department should exist and then in the process the department shut down so you know it's like that type of stuff that happened so BT over um over the pandemic needed content you know and I think when we showed it to them before they were they thought that it was too raunchy and sexual but over the course of the three years I mean insecure i mean all the shows that have come out are way way more r-rated than anything that was in lamert and so so they were way more open to it and asked for it they came around and said hey like is it available so you know i think the relationship with macro and it just being kind of on a shelf really um made a really easy decision to go with with bet plus the only the thing that like I'm sad about because I just wanted to put it on the internet and I think we would have probably been able to grow a larger audience for it and people have the people who I really wanted to see it see it with BET plus there's a paywall so it's harder for people to get their hands on it if they don't have BET plus mm -hmm. but still accessible you know what I mean and I'm really grateful that you know um, people can if they really really want to see it they could they could see it like it's not on my computer where it could be yeah. so yeah so I, I'm, I'm really glad that you said that because I was, just, I was just about to ask you, um, I guess what, I guess wh where, where does like the digital space slash independent web series, like where does that fit in now? Because there is so much more content than there was, you know, 10 years ago when Issa Rae was making Awkward Black Girl, mm -hmm. that was like someone doing a web series that was like still a relatively fresh new idea just to, just to do a web series like a tv show for the internet yeah and now there's so much content like for someone who's trying to get their foot in the door like where do you where do you see uh like what what purpose does a, a web series serve or like how can someone kind of um leverage their web series into you know getting their foot in the door um, I think a web series can serve a number of purposes. 
So a web series can help you finesse your voice and to hone in on your craft. You know, at the, I think, lowest hanging fruit, that's what it'll do. So that when the time comes, you're ready, right? Because you've had the experience of being on set and something really bad happening and working through it. I think doing anything is better than doing nothing and waiting for someone to give you an opportunity because to your point with so much content being out there, the likelihood of you not having any work and getting work is really slim, slimmer than it was 10 years ago. Um, and so I think the, like the, the least common denominator is it allows you to really play and to figure out what you want to say and how you want to say it and how many different ways you want to say it and what you like and what you don't like and who you like to work with and who you don't like to work with. In terms of if you're asking about web series as a means to be discovered, I think there's still opportunity for that. People are looking on the web for new talent, um, but it is definitely a crowded market and it just, the work has to be really great to rise to the top, which has always been the case. There's just a lot of really great work now. Um, so I think it's still worth worth it to do it, to, to create, because that's why you're doing it. I think if you're creating because you want to be discovered, because you want to be famous, it's going to be a really hard road, you know, um, because it's just, you. there's no way to know what the recipe is for that yeah. and how to make that happen. But what you can do is you can have a unique point of view and perspective and hone that unique point of view and perspective until you've created something that resonates with a lot of people um, and because you have something to say. So I think that's what web series did before. That's what web series do now. Um, that's what creating things will do forever, whether it's on TikTok, Instagram, or YouTube, or some other platform that's yet to be created I think being able to connect and create community around whatever you're you're making, whatever you're saying is 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 the strongest possibility for web series and it's it's the best thing you could do. Mm. If there's no other place for you to put it, if there's no other way for you to reach people. Yeah, I think I mean I think that that's very well said. I'm I'm also wondering like someone has an idea and it's like, all right, should I make should I make a short film? Oh, okay. Or yeah. should I like, you know, make this into a web series? Um, that sort of, you know, that okay. sort of thinking. I, you know, I think it depends on what it is that I think nowadays there are so many different ways to tell stories and there are different stories that work best in different formats. So I think it depends on what it is that you're making, what route you should take. If it's a complete and concise story, then you should make a short film. Because, you know, you can go to a festival like Sundance, which I did with both a digital series and a short and or a short film. So it's really more about what does your story demand? Is this character gonna go through a bunch of problems that they're never gonna solve? And the joy or the angst or the mystery of all of that is what is is driving the storytelling, then it sounds like it might be episodic. Um, if it's about some character who starts in one place and goes through the hero's journey and ends up on the other side of a different person, you know, or a slice of a life situation, then maybe it's a short film. But I think it's really gonna be more about what it is you're saying and what's the best way to say it than, you know, to be discovered. I think it really has to do with what, what the content is. Um, what was, uh, what was your experience like at Sundance? It was awesome. I mean, you know, it was awesome. I, <laughs> you, I had already been there as a producer a number of times, mm. right? So my expectation of Sundance as a director was not, it did not prepare me for the feelings I would have being there as a director. You know, being a producer is a thankless job. So you get to Sundance and you're organizing the panel that your director's on and making sure people have tickets and, you know, really still being in service to the movie. 
right? And you're like that for the rest of your life, like with the movies that you produce, you're always in service of that movie and whatever the movie needs at that time. I'd always thought of my the experience of Sundance as my experience as a producer, thought of that. And it's a great feeling to have made a movie that goes into one of the most prestigious and selective festivals in the world. And when you're a director, it's about what you envision coming to life. You know, it's so, so much um, pride that I felt to have made it through all those moments where I hated the film and thought that I should have never wasted these people's money. And, oh my God, like, maybe I should have been a lawyer, you know, <laughs> to have gone through like all of those feelings and then to, to be acknowledged, you know, recognized for the work that I had done. It was just so fulfilling and so rewarding you know to to have someone see you know I mean to be seen you know in general is I think every human beings want and so on that to be seen on that level was such an honor so I mean I can't really describe how awesome I felt about it and it was like one of the blackest Sundances ever so all my friends were there you know we're at parties and it, it was just it was it was a magical experience it, it really opened my eyes to what was possible in my life in a different way. And it was then that I decided to start my own commercial production company. And I, yeah, and I did, and I, my partner, we talked about it at that Sundance. So now we've had the company for three years and I direct commercials through that company. And it's just, it's just been a great journey. I think Sundance really, like you said, I mean, I think confidence is really one of the biggest and most necessary tools, you know, in, in a director's toolbox. And I think just going to Sundance gave me such a boost of confidence. Cause you know, I mean, I make a lot of films and you know, I'm a, you know, you, you meet me and I'm like strong and tough producer, but I'm also very sensitive as a creative person. And so it was just so rewarding to, to get that type of feedback. That's dope. Dope. Mm -hmm. um, so what other projects um, do you have uh, that you're you know able to tell us about? Okay, so what is next? I am working on my first feature. Okay. It is called Us Again. It is a very beautiful story about a couple. I love love stories. I just mm -hmm. produced a love story. The, the next thing that's coming down the pike is Really Love, directed by Angel Christie Williams, written by Felicia Pry, produced by myself and Macro showing on Netflix and beyond. Nice. So that's what's happening next. Um, and then I also got a Netflix amplifier grant for the film that I was just talking about, Us Again. And it's a love story as well. And it's a love story about, you know, two people who were in a relationship and have been um, broken up for about a year and they come back together to have their first date for the second time. That's very beautiful. Yeah, I'm excited about it. So, you know, trying to get all the pieces together now and all the money and all that, but I'm super, super, super happy and grateful to have found such an amazing script. I'm really excited to to bring it to life. Nice, nice. Um, yep. Where can people follow you on the interwebs? If you want to follow the few stories that I occasionally post of my child, you can go on Melly Mel, Mel underscore Jones and find me there my website uh, for the company that I'm I'm at with uh, Stephen Love Jr. and Justin Polk called The Invisible Collective. And you can find us there at weareinvisible.co, C-O. So those are two places where you can kind of see what I'm doing if you're ever interested. You have like, you know, broken through and you're, and you're killing it in the industry. And when I hear that you're not on social media, I'm like, okay, I don't have to do this. But mm -mm. I, there, I've gotten so many opportunities because of social media. Do you feel like you could, like, you might have missed out on opportunities? Do you even think about that? I mean, no, I don't really think about it. I think it's quite possible that, I mean, there's sometimes people will be up in my DMs asking about stuff and I see it like three months later, like, oh. But, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't, I just can't be bothered. Like, I don't know. I think, 
I do think that there it, it is a way for people to get in contact with you. But I also really truly believe that if it's meant for you, it'll happen no matter what. And I've seen that where someone had tried to get in contact with me on Instagram and failed and they still got in contact with me and I still did the job. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like if they really, if it's really kind of in the, in the cards and in the stars for you to do it, I don't think having social media is going to stop you. Mm. Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much, Mel, for uh, taking time out of your, your busy schedule to, uh, to talk to me and, 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 you know, communicate with our audience. Um, yeah. You know, I love uh, the work that you're doing and um, yeah, just appreciate your, your insight. Thank you. It was, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. I'm, I'm excited to share. Awesome. Have a good one. Okay. Thanks for listening to the Black Film Space podcast. If you're interested in attending our events, becoming a member, or donating to our mission, please visit us at blackfilmspace.com. Also, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Black Film Space. Subscribe to our email list and podcast. All right, peace out. I'll see you soon.